G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our 17th episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6, taking the Australian ecosystem from good to great, this week focuses on fintech. We'll start off in conversation with Data Republic co-founders Danny Gilligan and Paul McCartney. Their journey into international fintech success mirrors the growth of the fintech ecosystem across Australia. Then we'll pop down to Melbourne, where Simon Costello, CEO of Frankie Financial, is making it dramatically easier for neobanks, that's the new breed of small and focused financial institutions, to open and operate their businesses. Fintech, big, small, and very new, on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit myob.com twista. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, supporting students to become startup founders. UTS is engaging, inspiring, and connecting students to take the leap as startup founders. Check out what they're up to at startups.uts.edu.au. And This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Campaign Monitor. When it comes to email marketing, there's so much more that goes into creating smart and effective campaigns than what meets the eye. To start building smart and beautiful email newsletters today, try Campaign Monitor for free at campaignmonitor.com twist. Data. We got so much of it. It's almost dangerous because when it's particularly valuable, that's also when it needs to be the most secured. And you can't gloss that anymore. You have to prove that you've taken the appropriate steps to safeguard your data while still doing your best to learn from it and use it to improve your business, which is almost an impossible circle to square or was until Data Republic came along nearly four years ago with a plan to put all of this to rights. And it's my great pleasure to welcome to Twista the co-founders of Data Republic, Paul McCartney and Danny Gilligan. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Mark. Okay. So please tell me, what is the magic here with Data Republic? What do you do that allows people to square the circle around their data? I think, um, I think the really important thing is people um, need to understand that data sitting on its lonesome in a database or uh, wherever it is, um, if it's secure um, and it's held and it's held in a way that's private, right, it's de-identified. Um, it's it's not good or bad, and it's not even expensive or cheap. It's just data, and that's pretty similar to money when you think about it. If you think about if you think about the concept of money today, it's the same thing. Unless you use it, it, it it's um, it's not good or bad, or it doesn't the value is not applied to it. Mm-hmm. So money, if you give it to charity it's fantastic if you buy a bomb maybe not so good and so uh data is a bit the same and so what data republic does is it it provides a governance process um uh, or governance platform in effect and a a legal framework to help um, organizations manage um the process of data sharing or exchange now we're having a data exchange right now. Mm. Uh, there's lots of ways that you can exchange data and manage the process of discovering an insight from somebody else's data. But what we hold hold to be true is um, really containing what people do with it. Um, and so orchestrating um, a, a legal framework and a platform that manages and helps organizations manage and manage expectations around the permitted use of somebody else's data. So it almost sounds as though, as well as being characterized as a fintech startup, you're also a regtech startup in the sense that you're providing legal guidance for organizations around their practice relating to things that could get them into trouble if they do it wrong. 
you know, I, I I don't think it would fall under either of those dom- domains cleanly. In fact, kind of well, certainly uh, with a with a reinvention had on as well. Within data is not just a horizontal capability across industry verticals, but is emerging as an industry sector in its own right. Mm. So uh, data technology or technology that enables the growth of the data economy mm-hmm. is its own is its own cap- capability really. I mean, data touches everything, but the data economy, which is what we're looking to enable, um, is something in its own right. So when you say data economy, break that down a little bit for us. What do you mean when you say a data economy? Because this then makes you now a, basically a company that's doing a category definition, right? If you're talking about a data, a data economy, you're doing a category definition, and Data Republic will be known as the company that helped create the data economy. Well, I think, I think it's emerging in its own right. There are... Um, there are hundreds, thousands of companies whose job it is to take data and turn it into intelligence mm. that can be actioned and that can work across any different uh, industry domain. Um, I mean, the data economy is really the value that gets created through uh, the liquidity and application of data to new problems. That's the way that we think think about it quite simply. Um, and it's, a, it's kind of our core belief that data is the single biggest potential lever for microeconomic and social reform in the next couple of decades. And the problem, why that hasn't been realised to date, is it's trapped, as Paul said. It's just kind of trapped and static. And so being able to create liquidity in that data means data can move across domains, can move across problems, and then then all of the capability that enables those problems to be solved is what we would call collectively the data economy. One of the challenges around liquidity is... um, is commonality or commonality to a legal framework and uh, and governance. And so when you look at the history of money and how how we've seen massive dry, massive growth in liquidity of money as a result of things like debit and credit, yeah. which are arguably just data products sitting on top of deposit paces. They are that's all they are. Yeah, so, no, no no, I agree, I agree. You know, common legal frameworks, you know, between um, me, the card owner, and the bank, and the bank and the scheme, and the scheme in the you know the gateway, and the pos terminal in the gateway, and the pos terminal in the vendor, and when I buy a cup of coffee, that circle of liability is completed mm-hmm. from, with, across all those legal frameworks, and technologies enable that. So what? So think about that leverage for a second. You know, so mm-hmm. credit gets leveraged seven to nine times on deposit bases, two point yep. seven on debt. Uh, think about think about what that le- what 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 amount of leverage you get from a new insight, just one insight from about one segment of customers. Mm-hmm. There's infinite leverage because you're not you're not bound by um, by the, the the data itself. The data itself, you're not. You're, there's no monetary policy that's saying, hey, we can't we can't extend credit into twelve times because we'll be overheated. Data, the data insights are infinitely leverageable across markets, and the real challenge now. Um, is as data sharing starts to happen more and more, is how do you govern and constrain that around what gets done with it? And if you can do that, then you can start to say, for these uses with this data, with this type of data insight, um, it's got this value. Whether that's an actual value on the data or a value on the improvement in productivity or the cost out or, um, or whatever, there'll be a value associated with it. And that value, how can that value find its way onto a balance sheet? So this is a big thing, right? Because companies have data and they can't value the data. That means they can't insure the data. They can't. It's always a sort of a maintenance cost rather than a profit center. Are we starting to see Data Republic be one of the engines that's moving that along? Is that one of your goals to help make data a profit center? Well, it's 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 more than that. If you think about data as an asset class, um, so you can walk into a well-run organisation, and there will be a delegated authority framework mm-hmm. for two thousand dollars of spend, mm-hmm. right? But, but there'll be no delegated authority framework to take a USB stick of all the customer data and give it to a consulting firm. Yeah. Um, and so because data isn't regarded as an asset, it's not insured, it's not protected, it's not valued, it's not governed, it's not none of those Until it gets stolen, and then it's a, nobody's yeah. fault because no one Well, it's locked it. now. It's kind of, that's, the, that's the challenge. It is locked down now, and there's so much constraint around it that it doesn't ever get used, internally or externally. So uh, I think as you start to see... Um, in application value of data, then the way you react to it as an asset and the way you treat it, invest in it, 
enhance it, clean it, all of those kind of things, organisations just organically start doing more and more of that stuff. So a lot of the companies we started working with early when they realised we actually don't know, there is data sharing happening, we don't really know where it all is and how it's all being managed, realised that we don't have a delegated authority framework, we don't have an authorization process, and all of that stuff needed to get together to create an engine uh, to do more with their data. So they were better off for the experience. So does that mean that your first years at Data Republic were almost educating the, the first clients that you had about how to do things well? It, it, it The first year of existence was the pre-year, which was convincing one of our um, primary partners um, that this was even a good idea and, and to <laughs> allow us to access the data in the first place. Okay. Then, then the second year was then putting in place the legal framework mm-hmm. to give everybody comfort, and then the initial technology framework. So we, you know, the the two the two pre years were were or the those the one and the and the first. So it wasn't really until the end of the first year that Paul was even out in market with a probably end of the second year. Really, I mean, we we we, we the the challenge is if you don't really understand. The value of what you've got. The data again. I said data, data by itself isn't valuable. It's only when someone builds an insight or a product from it, mm-hmm. and it's only when they get apply that product that they actually get value out of it. And that that application of the insight could happen in a CRM, or it could happen in a, a DMP, or an email, or a or, or just a new business process. And so, the value of that one use case, um, you might have infinite numbers of infinite number of use cases on a data set, but uh, how they get applied and how much money it saves you, or how much money it makes you. Is, is only is only going to be availed to you um, when GAP changed their accounting principles to enable data to be an intangible asset. And to do that, they, the data that it needs to pass, or the, the, the category needs to pass the test of fungibility, which means you know the ability to be able to separate it and sold. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, it doesn't pass that test because it's illiquid, mm-hmm. and the use cases are so varied. And there's not a, there's not a there's not a, um, a taxonomy of use cases. Interestingly, with open banking, as those the use case taxonomies get defined, you know perhaps then there'll be movement by the accountant accounting groups to say, um, you know, for these use cases, you can start to value data, and then you've got increased leverage on your balance sheet. But this. I'm thinking now your first days as a startup where you were tr- literally trying to convince your first customers that what you were doing had value. And it took you a significant amount of time to do that. And that's, I mean, you're you're trying to change their minds and prove a business model that you folks know are correct, but that they can't see until you've basically done all of your work. How did you sustain your forward motion through that? It was... Um a lot of it was well. The way we're, the way we first started out is we had the view that um, it was very much about the marketplace, mm-hmm. uh, and so the organisations, the three founding shareholders, um, uh, Westpac, NAB, and Qantas, um, held us very much to account of if, if they're going to push into a marketplace for aggregated insights um, to offer to other parties. Uh, that they that the rigor that they we need to provide them around governance platform. Um, to do that is quite high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as it turns out, um, you know, what we've, what we've discovered you know, about a year ago uh, was that most people don't want to exchange data for money. They want to exchange it for utility. And okay, so the, yeah. the platform that we built has, um, is now the, the, the valuable um, or is now our go-to-market model, not, so, as, not as much the marketplace. Enterprise SaaS as opposed to having a marketplace for data. Right. So basically making a business run better because it can get more insights from its information. Well, it, it, enabling our um, customers to determine whether they want to um, exchange data for money or exchange data under more of a barter economy or for utility or for just purely for al- altruistic or customer-driven reasons. Mm-hmm. But there's, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, let's not kid ourselves, data sharing is going on every day yes. in all sorts of ways. Yes. And is required to be governed in different levels of assurance and compliance. At the moment, those governance levels are um, non-existent. Really, it's either binary generally, so it's either the data is either opened or closed. So it's either data about parklands, mm-hmm. which is you know open, uh, yeah. relatively open, and you may require some authentication, maybe. Uh, or and if you think about my own personal health record, mm. how tightly I would need to govern the process of sharing that mm. in aggregate or individually, uh, and secure security and all the other components. And so, 
um, you know, for us, it's being able to create a platform and a framework to enable um, organisations to dial up and dial down the governance level according to, not just according to the data, but according to, you know, several different types of mechanisms to govern it, whether it be in the data, in the legal framework, um, in security. So all of those different safes, we call them, are, are different mechanisms that you can um, manage the variance on the governance levels that you need to do for each individual share. Now, you started in Australia, but you're in how many countries now? In Australia, you're in America. Where in else Singapore. Are, in Singapore. So you, when did you start to think we need to be in more than just in Australia? Was that always part of the plan? You've just grown into it? Or is that something you came to? I mean, the opportunity was always there and the aspiration was always there. It's the heart that I think the difference is why we've approached uh, different markets. There's a huge network effect of data. Right. The more um, people are using it, the more valuable it is. Correct. The more overlays of different data yeah. you have, et cetera. And so the remarkable thing about natural oligopoly markets like Australia, Singapore, mm. New Zealand, et cetera, is you can work with three or four organizations and quite quickly create something that has national scale and relevance and and is a pretty good proxy for that network effect. A market like the US... Yeah, which is very heterogeneous. Correct. There are, there are no horizontal models that have emerged anywhere. Um, the only data sharing constructs that have emerged of, uh, within industry niches, vertical application all the way down. Yeah. Um, because it is just too big a market. And so running headlong at the US with a horizontal layer like this would be pretty crazy. Um, uh, so, you know, Australia and Singapore have been incredible in that regard because, mm -hmm. um, you know, three or four kind of Singaporean uh, companies and you've now got the foundations for, um, for a very strong position in, in that market. And then once you can demonstrate what's possible, at a national scale, once you start demonstrating the ecosystem of possibilities, then I think the conversations become easier in those yeah. in those more. Um, well, you can point to someone else having a success, and that's always the best way to get a new customer. Correct, correct. So it, it's uh, the global opportunity was always there, but the global go-to-market mm. is very different because transactional data, the most valuable data in the world, is very local. Mm -hmm. You know, there's only two observed data companies in the world at scale, and they're Google and Facebook. Mm. One search intent, the other's kind of social interaction. Mm. Neither of those data signals are anywhere near as powerful as transactional data, retail data, telco geolocated data, insurance data, etc. Um, but those data assets are very, very local. Okay. So you started to grow internationally, and now we're coming to this idea that there are different regulations in place in Singapore and in Australia and in New Zealand and in America to govern data. Actually, I don't know if America has any regulations to govern data because they just like the Wild West over there. Does that mean that the way that you're approaching each international market has its own very specific flavor? So you can't just sort of say one size fits all across them? But, um, from a platform perspective, um it depends on what you mean by data. From a platform perspective, uh, less so. So there's obviously, there are some legal requirements that we need to change by country mm. to use the platform. Um, but the way that we manage PI, personal information, or PI in the US, um, is such that, uh, you know, we, we don't, we, don't re we sit outside most of the privacy frameworks because we, we don't house any personal information. Right. We only have tokenized data. Uh, and the way that we are able to match on that tokenized data, if that was a use case that was um, allowed, uh, is such that we don't even we don't end up end up seeing it either. We do it in a federated way, uh, and so um, whereas the data sharing framework that we offer to market, there's a sort of over about over 150 companies roughly um, on that framework in Australia. Um, that's that's such that that is customised for the country. Um, but it's still it's still got commonality to warranties and indemnities and liabilities. Okay. Um, so there is interoperability between each of the entities when they're looking to do you know um, hopefully this hopefully in the next year uh, cross border data transfer. So I mean so in that case it's not that these are entirely separate. It's more like uh, language localization if you're making a game or something. Correct. Like that. That's what. Yeah. So. Um, the deliberate design of Data Republic from day one was to be secure by design, private by design. Mm -hmm. Not to how do we not get hacked, but if you get hacked, it can't matter. And so by constructing that way and never having PI anywhere 
in infrastructure, even when you're dealing with hundreds of millions of customer records, it means you fall outside of privacy frameworks globally, and that gives you the ability to technically scale across markets without having to change for different kind of regional constructs, particularly if you're going for lowest common denominator, the most privacy-centric um, countries. Mm. And so it is more like language control. It's your commercial frameworks in market that you need to localize. But again, there you want as much interoperability as possible because one of the really exciting things we'll focus on with you know Singapore and Australia over the next year is to try and enable, as Paul talked about, the world's first cross-border trade in data. Because yeah. data trade globally doesn't really exist today apart yeah. from you know, multinationals within their own Yeah, exactly, within their own private empires, Google. Which they, which they struggle with, America. by the way. So we with a, lot of, a lot of discussions with multiple enterprises just around helping them manage the governance of their own inter- internal subsidiary sharing, either within, within a country or, or between countries. All right, so this is, now I'm just sort of final question, but it's got two halves. You're growing fast. The last time I checked, you had 40 employees. You probably have more than that now. How are you handling growth? You know, as founders and founding entrepreneurs, how do you ha- how are you handling growth? I think that's something listeners will want to understand. But also, how far does this grow? Where do you see Data Republic in three or five years as you get this international data sharing off the ground? Um, at the moment, you know, we're probably touch over fifty people now. Um, yeah, and it's a it's an interesting stage for a business. You're still a pimply teenager, right? So there's you know processes and um, uh, protocols that, that large organisations would have, even roles, mm. management roles, are still um, are still being done by different by the same person, you know. So um, getting through this next phase is um, uh, it's important that that you hire people that accept that that changes are given, uh, and that roles need to adapt to um, um, into into something that's more more rigorous around a process, hiring and those sorts of things. So. Um, it was starting to fill. We'll following um, uh, early next year. We'll start to fill out that management, sort of a more more stable management layer. Um, if I think about um, in three to five years, I think the the, the ambition is. Um, I, I don't. Um, we obviously have a business plan that we're working towards, mm-hmm. um, but the ambition is that you know that that the platform itself or the interface in the platform is one that's that can be integrated into. Um, into a multitude of applications, uh, and so it becomes a um, uh, you know an API interface for to standardise protocols um, for data sharing to contingent on whatever application you're using. And so, um, so if that I mean there's there's areas at the moment where there's a lot of services required. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still service man a lot of managed services to make a lot of these things occur. Uh, increasingly, we'll standardise. Um, technology to, to, to take out those managed services and then our partners will be able to then use the platform, you know, people like Ernst & Young and Accenture and Deloitte, those sort of organisations, um, can use the platform to manage and um, uh, and execute on shares that, that organisations want to do internally or externally. And, um, you know, at the moment we're at the tip of the iceberg um, for what's possible given that, you know, most customers... Of any of any organisations, spend most of their time not dealing with that organisation. They spend most of the time dealing with other other companies, and if you can access insights securely and privately and in a governed manner that that maps to a benefit that's reasonably expected by that consumer, then um, that unlocks the other ninety five percent. Paul, Danny, thank you very much for being on this week in Startups Australia. Pleasure, Mark. Thank you. MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. 
MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian Tax Office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com twista for your free trial today. One of the most interesting aspects of fintech as it's developing in Australia now is what we see as the rise of the neobanks. The fact that the big four banks basically bought all of their competitors and there were no competitors for about a decade and now we're seeing, I think it's going to be 40 new banks launching this year. And one of the banks that's leading the way, or perhaps we'll call it a metabank and explain what that is, is Frankie. And the CEO of Frankie is Simon Costello. Simon, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. So tell us a little bit about what Frankie is and what you're doing. Sure. So maybe I can start with a little bit of the journey and sort of how, how we got there. So neobanks is very topical at the moment. There's been change in regulation in Australia, an introduction called the Restricted Banking Licence. And these, this licence is mimicked a little bit by what happened in the UK. Uh, in the UK, about four years ago, uh, they introduced a very similar licence. And sure enough, yes, you had a multitude of applications coming in. Right. Very similar to what we're seeing here uh, in Australia. And so I think it's 34 banks, uh, full banking licence have been issued in the last four years in the UK. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, there was only, in the last 100 years, there's only been one banking licence. This is in the UK. So right. amazingly changed what's happened. And you can see from a sector, absolutely exploding. Right. So sure enough, now that they've... Um, have the new license in Australia. Yes, as the, the figures that you've quoted, I've heard something similar. Mm. There's been 40 applications of interest for uh, new banks in Australia. A number of them have announced, which is quite exciting. Though what we expected to see in Australia is a very similar trend to what we've seen in the UK. Mm. And soon you're also uh, in, the, in Hong Kong. They've also had, I think it's 40 or 50 uh, applications of interest to start a new digital banks. So these are... Um, in developed countries. Well, these are also, I mean, these are three countries that not are only developed, but are known for having sophisticated banking systems, right? That's the thing. Exactly. And so uh, I'll consider these countries as leaders, and it's inevitably will, will happen uh, in uh, following countries as well. And so when, basically, what creates innovation? It's probably, it's, uh, it's largely comes down to cost. If you can lower the barriers to entry, mm -hmm. Uh, then all of a sudden new business models and new opportunities come about. Right. So, I mean, this is the fundamental of disruptive innovation. Exactly. So, you know, historically, it would cost you $500 million to try and create a bank. Uh, this is obviously very high barriers to entry. Uh, yes. And hence, we're just going to have people starting up banks every so often. But now costs are really coming down and, and innovation uh, and a combination of a number of factors, a supportive regulator, uh, reduction in, uh, in prices, and also there's a change in uh, consumer um, uh, trust levels towards banks. You know, before you couldn't have a fintech that was only mobile only. Uh, now there is this trust and actually you know, one might actually argue that we we'll trust a, a fintech more so than a bank. But anyway, we'll get to that later. But where we well, are- Well, you haven't broken their hearts, yeah. whereas the banks have, <laughs> so yes. So um, I suppose the future in the fintech and the neos bank is quite exciting. Mm -hmm. Now. Um, what Frankie Financial uh, is doing is we're really focusing on um, how is it we can support this, uh, the new neobanks that are coming. And so you've got, I think it's about four or five that's sort of announced, mm -hmm. um, not necessarily launched, but announced in Australia. Mm -hmm. And yes, we expect more to come. Mm. Now, if I want to speak very simply on how to create a bank, there's a front end, 
which is the app, the website, et cetera, very much uh, customer experience. And then you've got the back end, which in banking terms is often called core banking. The core banking. And there is a number of different elements inside the core banking, but um, and historically, it was very clunky, monolithic, very, very difficult. And you know, the big four banks today, uh, they unfortunately quite hamstrung in the way that they can move. Mm-hmm. They, um, I think, uh, on IT spend, it's eighty plus percent of the big four spend it on infrastructure. They don't spend it on innovation uh, and customer centric. On let's say the front end, it's all on the back end. So what Frankie Financial is doing is we are focusing on the back end, on mm-hmm. innovation on the back end. Mm-hmm. Now, our goal and what we're looking at, what we're, we're doing at the moment is if we can build a platform and we actually have multiple banks sitting on this platform, we can divide the cost through these neobanks, make it cheaper for all from a back end perspective, so just, and I don't mean to undercut you, but this is kind of like an AWS model where everyone is sharing the servers and the infrastructure costs so that then everyone gets cheaper computing. But that, that is exactly right. Okay. And so that is a, the perfect analogy on what's happening. So previously, I mean, if you're using the AWS model example, you know, 20 years ago to make a website, you need a server sitting in, in your room to do that. Today, it's all cloud-based. Until 12 months ago, there was no cloud-based core banking system mm-hmm. in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, and actually very little places in the world, to be totally honest. And this is so the financial service is actually very backwards in a lot of ways, but the benefit is that you can see the future. You can see inevitably what's going to happen. Right. And from an investment standpoint, that's very exciting if you can predict the future. And so if we can see that the AWS of banking is coming about, then very exciting. So yes, we're making it cloud-based. Yes, we're making it shared infrastructure. That's a very key part. So we talk about collaboration. Instead of every trying to build everything ourselves, no, we build it, and that is different modules, whether it be from KYC, whether that be from core banking. So let, let's, let's dig in a little bit. KYC for our listeners means know your customer, and at the retail level, we think of that as the 100 points of ID that you have to present when you're doing something major. Now, how are you treating KYC differently for everyone who's sitting on the Frankie platform? So, a good question. So, I suppose um, listeners would be aware when you're, uh, say, with, say, one of the big four, say you're with Commonwealth Bank of Australia, you have a debit card today. And then you're with Commonwealth Bank, you go, hey, you know what? I would like to have a credit card. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia to ask for another 100 points of ID. Right. Because they already know you. But unfortunately, if you go to new neo bank, say Vault, they'll have to ask you for another 100 points of ID. Because ComBank doesn't hand over the fact that they know you well enough to be able to vouch for you. Exactly. So what we're looking to do is, from a backhand perspective, help customers and connect these banks so they talk to each other. Mm. So when, and using that example that we used before, Mm -hmm. uh, you have a new Vault Bank account, but you're also with Commonwealth Bank. You've gone through the 100 points of ID with Commonwealth Bank and it can be transferred over to the new FinTech or the new Neobank Vault or whatever it be. Now, this is hugely valuable from a customer experience perspective. You don't need to go through this whole uh, signing up and onboarding process, and also hugely valuable from the bank's perspective. They don't need to pay additional costs, uh, et cetera. And also, so it helps the customer, helps the back end of the bank, and ultimately, if it reduces costs, it is better for everybody in the industry and customers. Well, and we've seen this, of course, in the developing world, where a lot of the people and companies in the developing world are unbanked because the acquisition cost of onboarding the customer doing that KYC is more than the customers bringing into the bank. So the bank's just like, well, we don't want you as a customer. Yeah, and I suppose from an outsider, not knowing some of those, the unit economics and the detail, um, you can say, oh, why does this happen? Why does it happen? And a lot of that comes down to, it just comes out of the financials. And so this is the whole point. If we can reduce the uh, the cost base for everybody, everybody should, uh, everybody should win from this. Okay, so then does this mean I've got a crazy idea, I want to do a, a new bank that's focused on payments for mobility, let's say, so I ring you up and say, okay, I need core banking infrastructure. Is this then, are you offering this as a subscription service? Exactly right. So uh, we uh, on a um, SaaS model, mm. exactly right, uh, and you pay on a monthly basis. Right. So the concept is, yes, if you want to issue cards, if you wanted to um, have a dep- uh, funds deposited, this is something that we can assist you with. Okay. And that then means that 
basically a one-stop shop gives me this incredibly expensive, hard to manage, finicky, highly regulated back end because you're taking all of that on. The same way that Amazon takes on the five nines or six nines of reliability. Yeah, so what we look after uh, is the technology and the infrastructure perspective. Uh, we have a partnering bank. Ultimately, those funds need to sit in a, uh, an ADI holder or someone with a banking license. Mm -hmm. We have a partner bank where that does get deposited. Mm -hmm. So we have that relationship. Uh, you want to issue, assumably, Visa, MasterCard. We have a relationship with them. And so what we offer is a turnkey solution. Uh, the, the, using your example, if you called me up and said I wanted to start a bank, there are some regulatory oversight, just to be clear. There's a thing called an AFSL. And, you will. <laughs> and, I, and I think we should be absolutely clear that although it may be Joe's Bank of Collins Street, that Joe is still going to have to be licensed and regulated and there will be APRA and ASIC and AFSC and all of that will have... St we, we aren't running an end game around that. Yeah, so there, there's a number of uh, different regulatory uh, authority, and whether it's there's APRA, there is um, ASIC, there is a, a number of different players uh, out there. This is still a very much a regulated industry, and we're not affecting that. Yeah. Uh, all we're doing is reducing the cost through shared infrastructure. Um, know your client, the KYC, the 100 points referring to, if that is one aspect, we do the shared, and um, the other aspect is through infrastructure. And so and then we also change the models. Instead of needing the hundreds of millions of dollars, we can do it for uh, far cheap because it's on subscription-based. Right. Now, turning to your model as a business, if you're, if you're moving toward a subscription model, a SaaS model, investors understand this. They understand how that should work. They understand how you're going to acquire customers and grow to a sale. Does that mean that as a startup, you've found it a very straightforward process to be able to get investment for the business? Or is this so sort of new and exciting that you've really had to teach the investors what you're doing while you're going along? Yeah, so um, the SaaS model uh, is relatively uh, well understood now with inside investors. Uh, and whether that is from a B2C, business to consumer, or business to business, which is obviously our, our company, um, they understand that. And as long as we can provide the metrics and uh, uh, explain the uh, rate of return, they, there wasn't the too much uh, explanation required. Okay, so all the fancy stuff that's going on in the back end, they're like, oh yeah, we trust that you, you know how to do this correctly. Yeah, so there's, there's, uh, in any investor, there's risks in different areas, whether it be technical risk, whether it be operational, um, financial, et cetera. So from a financial perspective, understanding the models, they're very clear on that. Um, technical risk and execution risk, et cetera, are others, but that's down to the team, and, uh, et cetera. So how do we see this unfolding? If you now have a platform, what I'm calling a metabank platform, so a platform mm -hmm. that you can call up and basically like getting a Netflix subscription, I can now have a bank subscription effectively. How does that start to play out in seeing different kinds of banks form? Because if it becomes very easy and ch much cheaper, but much easier for people to start their own banks, will we start to see banks be folded into retail businesses or into wholesale businesses or into energy generators or whatever? Will we see banks popping up in places that we couldn't before because there was too much friction? So I suppose one thing, just to be clear on the word bank is a restricted word, and so they get a bit funny about using that word. Um, to, to call yourself a bank, you need to have what they feel as an ADI, or Australian Deposit Taking Institution, mm -hmm. which is regulated by APRA, mm -hmm. and you need to go through the process, and you'll see another neobanks have gone down that path. So mm -hmm. to be clear, using the word bank, uh, they get a bit funny about that. What you'll note is there's a neobank called UP, which has piggybacked off um, uh, Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. Now, you'll never hear up to walk around saying they're a bank, right? And they won't hear, actually won't hear them saying they're a neobank. They'll say they'll offer uh, banking-like services, maybe, and just from a definitional standpoint. But uh, as, as far as functionality-wise and offering cards and deposit accounts and investment products, everything that a bank does, this can be offered by partnering with uh, existing providers. So we're going to need a new word for businesses that start offering financial services that are similar to banks, yeah. but aren't actually So banks. usually financial institution is the word that does get used, it's very, very generic, um, but, but yes, offer banking-like services, but they're actually financial institutions. <laughs> it's a retailer with financial characteristics. Yeah, it gets a little bit messy. Um, 
So I think, yeah, so just generally, uh, you've got four large banks, they're 80 plus percent of the market. So obviously there's a major um, part, whether it be uh, business, uh, SME banking, and also consumer, that has been hugely underserved. And you know, I'm sure anyone of your listeners is very aware of the dissatisfaction rates towards banks. Um, and you know, that's a whole other topic of discussion, but there is a huge opportunity for neo banks and financial institutions to be taking this up. Uh, and yes, I would say, uh, the future where the things are going, that you'll have more diversity of services, more customer-centric, more um, digital only, uh, and they'll be popping up in slightly different areas. And uh, Frankie Financial is, yeah, one of those companies that are looking to uh, power or assist these players. Right, and, and seriously, when we're talking about all this, you have to think about the, the, the soil that all these banks are growing in. Frankie is fertilizing that soil. Yeah, yeah. Simon, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you very much, Mike. University of Technology Sydney recognizes the incredible potential of the next generation of Australian startup founders. UTS believes entrepreneurship is about doing, inspiring students to take that first step on their founder journey, then encouraging them to keep going. UTS Startups supports student founders from ideation stage to launch with one-on-one mentorship and guidance to support them from across the entire startup ecosystem. This new UTS startup model focuses on connecting each founder with what they need, when they need it, as well as forging connections between members of the UTS startups community. Go see their vibrant collaboration space on Harris Street in Ultimo or visit startups.uts.edu.au to find out more. We recently launched a new segment for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia, asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to twist the listeners in their own words. This week, we'll hear from Pete Horsley of the Remarkable Accelerator for Inclusive Technology. Take it away, Pete. Hi, Mark. My name is Pete Horsley, and I'm the founder of Remarkable, a technology accelerator for early-stage disability technology startups based in Sydney. Remarkable launched in March 2016, and since then we've had three cohorts and a total of 20 startups come through the program. The community that we serve is founders of early stage startups who are using technology to solve a variety of needs in the disability space. It sees the potential that technology has to overcome some of the barriers that people with disability face every day. Barriers that just aren't there for others without disability. We think of the impact that cochlear technology has had globally and want to replicate that and see applications using robotics and wearables, sensor technology, AI and VR having similar impact on the lives of people with disability. Back in 2014, we ran a global competition asking people with disability to state one thing that would change their world. And then people would vote on those ideas that they thought were the best and then would support the development of a prototype of of the best idea with some prize money. And we had a man by the name of Alpa contact us from a small country town called Bursa in Turkey. And he, he said the thing that stops him from living a full life is the unreliability of his powered wheelchair. He said it was old and it uh, had an old battery that didn't hold a long charge. So he wasn't able to go to work. He wasn't able to worship at the temple on the other side of town. But he said, if someone could design me a solar powered wheelchair, that would change my world. So we put it out to the worldwide maker community and we got an email from the University of Virginia, a feedy university for NASA engineers. They said that they could build it. And uh, when they had built the prototype, they, they sent us back a photo and they had literally mounted some solar panels on a frame that went over the top of the head of the wheelchair user. To be honest, it was pretty ugly, but you know what? It worked. We went to award them some prize money and they asked if they could use the prize uh, money to send the prototype over to Alpa in Turkey. 
We of course said yes. Um, now, and within days, Alpa um, was sending us back photos um, of him outside that temple that he wanted to worship at. A number of weeks later, he said he had got a part-time job in town. There is no doubt that technology can be transformative for people with disability, but we've got a long way to go. Our program is a lot like other accelerator programs. We have a 16-week program. We give a small amount of startup capital to support the founders. Uh, we provide co-working space at Fishburners at Sydney Startup Hub. We have weekly masterclasses on a range of, product, of topics from product market fit to, uh, to business models, as well as sales and growth and investability. But we really do tailor the support for each startup, which is why we only take on small cohorts. We have weekly mentoring from our entrepreneur and residents one-on-one and access to our extensive and, and really highly skilled mentor community. We introduce the founders to, to investors and, and we also maintain informal supports once the program is finished. In terms of what the startups get out of the programs, our startups all mention probably a sampling of what I've just mentioned, but the three things that we hear over and over from our startups that they really, uh, I guess, appreciate most out of Remarkable are our disability sector expertise, our networks, and our support. The disability sector is a fast growth sector propelled by one of the largest social reforms Australia has seen in the last two decades, the National Disability National Disability Insurance Scheme. We help startups navigate that and understand how to best operate in that. Our networks combine access to partners, startup mentors, user testers and investors. And then our support goes beyond just telling founders that they can do it, but we, we really do take seriously founder health and wellbeing. And we don't see an accelerator's job finishes at demo day. We keep supporting their success well beyond the end of the formal program. There's been quite a few success stories coming from all three cohorts, but perhaps just to mention a few. Ability made from our first cohort of successfully completed clinical trials and have raised over $2 million. Home Care Heroes from cohort two have quadrupled their customer numbers and now have more than 12,000 heroes and customers. Uh, Autism Swim from our most recent cohort just won Ant Hill's Smart 100 award. And Exceptional, another startup, from our current uh, uh, most recent cohort grew tenfold during the program in, in cash flow, in business leads, and also in staffing. And they're currently a finalist in the Google Impact Challenge uh, and in the running to win a million dollars. So our next intake is, is now open for cohort four. Applications are open until the end of January, and then the program will kick off at the end of March in 2019. People can apply by going to remarkable.org.au forward slash accelerator, or they can express interest in our upcoming free boot camp on November 24th by emailing us at hello at remarkable.org.au. Thanks, Mark. When it comes to email marketing, there's so much more that goes into creating smart and effective campaigns than what meets the eye. That's why Campaign Monitor created an easy-to-use email marketing platform, complete with simple drag-and-drop email editor and award-winning 24-7 customer service. Campaign Monitor gives you everything you need to run beautifully designed, professional email marketing campaigns to grow your business. With their gallery of beautiful, professionally designed email templates, all of which look amazing on every device, you're bound to find something that will make your brand pop. And since Campaign Monitor uses detailed lists and smart segments, your messages instantly drive more engagement. No wonder it's used by more than 250,000 businesses worldwide. And it's rated highest in customer satisfaction among major email marketing software vendors. To start building smart and beautiful email newsletters today, try Campaign Monitor for free at campaignmonitor.com twist. Listeners who sign up and become a customer will receive a free t-shirt. Again, that's campaignmonitor.com twist.
In five years of doing this podcast, I don't recall a time when I've had guests across the entire show speak so technically and yet so powerfully about what they're doing and how what they're doing is going to transform the entire business landscape. You can hear Paul and Danny talking about how we will be using data completely differently within just a few years and what that actually will mean for businesses and for business-to-business relationships as data becomes something that is an actual I don't know, commodity, value, whatever you want to call it. We don't quite have a word for it yet, except it will exist on the balance sheet in a different way. And that will change the way we organize our businesses because businesses will discover that they have to actually leverage data in a different way in order to make profit from it. So that's that's going to be a huge thing. And, and Data Republic is actually leading the way on that globally. And then you have Frankie Financial. And again, changing the way we think of what a bank does by changing how that bank works underneath and then enabling a whole new generation of banks to spring up that can take advantage of that technology that don't have to refashion the wheel every time they're going to start a bank. That will lower the barriers to entry and transform the nature of banking from something that's big and consolidated, and Australia has been very good at that and been very profitable at that, changing it from being big and consolidated to smaller and distributed and affiliated and federated. And all of a sudden, you can start to see how Franking Financial and Data Republic may actually be on an interesting collision course. Big thanks to Twista sponsors MYOB, UTS, and Campaign Monitor. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to Paul McCartney, Danny Gilligan, Simon Costello, and Pete Horsley for joining us on this episode. Now, we've rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links, and all the stories. So check it out on twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week with more great stories from Australia's startup community. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 